You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's February 24th. I'm Emily Schutz. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. On today's show, Ukrainians in New York respond to the news of the Russian invasion. In terms of putting the army where it is, I never envisioned in 2022 that history is repeating itself. Also, will President Biden come through on his promise to ease student debt? This lending system is catastrophically, uh, galactically failed. Amazon workers on Staten Island make strides toward building a union. And so they're going against the most powerful uh, capitalist formation. And we'll hear about the rise of Wordle. It may be a simple game, but it's not about to fizzle out anytime soon. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Washington announces more severe sanctions against Russia. President Biden warns the U.S. will make sure Russian leader Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine costs Russia dearly, strategically and economically. NPR's Asma Khalid reports on Biden's address to the nation this afternoon about the biggest attack one state has waged against another in Europe since World War II. President Biden says the United States is blocking four more major banks and specifically mentioned Russia's second largest bank, VTB. This means, he says, every asset they have in America will be frozen. Biden also announced plans to limit exports to Russia and sanction additional Russian oligarchs. This aggression cannot go unanswered. If it did, the consequences for America would be much worse. America stands up to bullies. We stand up for freedom. The Russian president is not on the sanctions list, but Biden told reporters sanctioning Putin remains an option. The president emphasized the U.S. is not acting alone, but in coordination with allies. Asma Khalid, NPR News. NATO had been monitoring the Russian military's actions for months. Then President Putin gave the order, a pre-dawn raid against Ukraine by land, air and sea. NPR's Frank Langford is in Odessa, an economically vital area of Ukraine that also came under missile attack. This is the initial phase of a large-scale invasion, and the target, first and foremost, is going to be the capital. Um, and the idea will be to come in and lay siege of the capital, encircle it. And the quote uh, today from uh, the, the Americans was, the intention is to basically decapitate the government, installing another method of governance. And I've been hearing that from military analysts with ties to the government here on the ground as well. NPR's Frank Langfitt reporting. Well, following the invasion, global crude oil surged beyond $100 a barrel. Investors are worried about potential supply disruptions. Here's NPR's Camilla Dominoski. The last time oil saw triple digits was in 2014, but for months now, analysts have predicted this psychological milestone. Oil was already expensive because producers weren't keeping up with demand. That made gasoline more expensive and contributed to inflation. Then came warning signs of an invasion. Russia is a major oil and gas producer, and either battles or sanctions might disrupt exports. Europe would be the most affected. The continent relies on Russia for more than a third of its natural gas, which is used for heat and electricity. European natural gas prices have surged. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Well, this morning, U.S. stocks were down sharply. At one point, the Dow plunged more than... From Columbia Radio News, I'm Chantel Destra. Hundreds gathered in Times Square this afternoon to protest the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
Protesters marched from Times Square to the offices of the Russian mission to the United Nation on the Upper East Side. Two staff prosecutors in charge of Trump's criminal probe resigned yesterday. Both attorneys declined to comment on their reasons for resigning. District Attorney Alvin Bragg says the investigation is ongoing and his office will move forward without the two prosecutors. We'll have more on the resignations and the investigation into Trump's finances later on in the show. Mayor Adams has tapped Andrew Kimball to head New York City's Economic Development Corporation. Kimball is the CEO of Industry City. In January, Adams was on track to appoint Carlos Cicera before a report alleged that Cicera engaged in illegal lobbying practices on behalf of a developer. The Sarah Palin defamation lawsuit against the New York Times may not be over. Last week, the judge overseeing the case announced that he intended to dismiss the case for lack of evidence if a verdict favored Palin. Yesterday, Palin's attorney told a federal judge that they plan to ask for a new trial. The New York City Marathon will be back in full swing this fall. Organizers announced today that the coveted runner's event will be making its return on November 6th. The marathon was canceled in 2020 and run with a smaller capacity in 2021. Up to 50,000 runners will be able to join this year's marathon. Runners will also have to show proof of vaccination to enter. Severe snow showers are expected in the city later on today. A winter weather advisory has been issued for Thursday and Friday. Chantal Desha, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Emily Schatz. For Ukrainians around the world, watching Russia's attack unfold from a distance has been especially difficult. Clara Sophia Daly heads to the East Village to get reactions from New York's Ukrainian community. Maria Schutz is a fixture of New York City's Ukrainian community. For the past 45 years, she has been the director of the Ukrainian Museum. The museum collection includes colorful folk art and old textiles and photographs. Sitting inside the lobby, Schutz says as she was watching the bombings on TV last night, she was hoping Russia wouldn't attack Kiev, the cradle of Ukraine's culture, with churches that were built in the 10th century and museums with artifacts from 5000 BC. Ukraine is older than Russia. Uh, Ukraine was there before Muscovy. Uh, they, had, they appropriated Ukraine's history. Uh, they're taking on uh, this, this rhetoric that this is, one, this is one, one nation. It is not. We have our own culture. We have our own history. We have our own language. Uh, we're a nation. Schutz is almost in tears, but despite the chaos on the news, she is calm. Schutz says Ukraine needs help, but is careful not to react too strongly. It may be the wisest move right now not to, not to go in, uh, uh, with guns blazing at, at, uh, with the whole world kind of joining into this fight. Around the corner at Veselka, a Ukrainian restaurant on the corner of 2nd Avenue, Customers look relaxed. They're sipping coffee and enjoying warm pancakes and pierogies. But the mood among many of the staff is not so warm. 
Jason Burchard owns the restaurant. He says his grandfather was a Ukrainian patriot who escaped when Russia annexed the country during World War II. He came to New York and opened the restaurant soon after. Burchard says today his grandfather would be rolling in his grave. Ukraine has a long and difficult past with Russia involving war and famine and going back centuries. This could be the beginning of World War III. I mean, do we, is, have we not learned enough in our history? I mean, it's, it's very sad. I feel very sad. After staying up watching the news last night, Burchard and his employees gathered this morning for prayer, hopeful that peace will prevail. Some of the servers here have family in the Ukraine. They're worried. They didn't want to talk on tape. At this moment, uh, I, uh, I really believe that we're dealing with a madman and, and Putin, and um, I, he should be held accountable for his actions. I mean, this is, he's bringing on unnecessary um, losses of life for, for what? For Burchard and many other Ukrainian New Yorkers, they feel a sense of regret. It's like history is being repeated. Clara Sophia Daly, Columbia Radio News. It's not just missile strikes. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, Ukrainian government websites were also under attack, as were some in nearby countries in Eastern Europe, which have reported computer infected with destructive malware. Stephen Belovin is a professor of computer science at Columbia University, where he serves on the Data Science Institute Cybersecurity Committee. He says this week's cyber attacks included a range of threats to information and computer infrastructure and could have implications for cybersecurity even here in New York. Thus far has been uh, denial of service, flooding sites with traffic, wiping disks, and so on. There are more subtle attacks that are possible, but you know, we, we haven't seen those just quite yet strongly connected to uh, Ukraine. But certainly there's the potential for all sorts of mischief going on right now. Because the uh, governments of the world, all major and some intermediate or minor governments, have developed much more robust attack capabilities. Add to that Russia's very capable core, call it the cyber irregulars, the uh, criminal gangs that are tolerated by the Kremlin as long as they don't uh, attack within Russia, well, they'll just get a green light and even encouragement to go attack uh, the US, Western Europe, Central Europe, et cetera. So I think that you know, we're certainly in a heightened period of danger right now. In this moment of cyber warfare, Governor Kathy Hochul has recently announced the creation of the Joint Security Operations Center in Brooklyn in response to concerns of potential cybersecurity attacks here in New York. The center, which is the first of its kind in the country, plans to create a united effort to fight cybersecurity across all levels of government. Could this center be a model for the rest of the country, especially in preparing for potential cyber attacks? You know, information sharing is of some benefit, but not as important as getting good defenses in place and good ability to recover in place. That's what I want to see. I want to see uh, education on what you should be doing, assistance in doing what you should, uh, should be doing, and assistance in recovery once you're attacked. Uh, but again, once you're attacked, you know, then the horse is stolen. It's too late to close the barn door. Sharing information about threats, yeah, well, that's good, but what are you going to do with the information? You need concrete, actionable information that goes beyond the generic. 
why is New York specially positioned to take on this effort or to, to, to bring about the center? So New York is going to be a very large target for some of this because of its uh, hub as the financial center of the world, certainly of the country. And finance, well, finance is critical infrastructure. The Port of New York is critical infrastructure. Uh, and just the density of businesses and everything else here in the city makes it a uh, attractive target, but also means that the city and the state have the resources to do more. Professor Stephen Belovin serves on the Cybersecurity Committee at Columbia University's Data Science Institute. Next week is the deadline to apply to join one of Manhattan's community boards. Members advise elected officials on everything from budgets to zoning. Historically, though, these volunteers have trended whiter and more male than the communities they're meant to represent. Now, the city is making an effort to diversify its community boards. But, as Uptown Radio's Elliot Schiaparelli reports, critics say recruiting diverse members isn't enough. Tanya Bonner has been on her local Washington Heights community board for a couple of years. The year before Bonner was appointed, the city gave the borough president's office a mission to seek out people of diverse backgrounds like her. Bonner, a black woman, thinks the city has been doing a pretty good job of that, but she says more needs to be done. Once these people are here, there's like it's like we're forgotten. It's like all of that push. It's like it is, it's almost like, OK, we're going to get these people here, but we're not going to do anything to retain them. Mark Hannes is with Inclusive America, a nonprofit that advocates for diversifying government positions. He says recruitment is only step one. Sometimes people, I believe, overemphasize uh, the recruitment and not enough about the retention and the promotion. And so when we look at diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility, it's not just that first phase. It's about that retention. New York City has three main ways it's working to recruit more diverse community board members. The first is how Bonner was appointed, outreach. An aide from the borough president's office reached out to Bonner and encouraged her to apply. The next major change, creating term limits, making room for new voices. And the final change is collecting and making public demographic data. The demographic difference of boards is drastic in the Bronx, for example, where one neighborhood had a community board with nearly three times more white people on it than live in the area. Hannah says to have an inclusive workplace, boards should employ proven strategies from the private sector. Easy ones are like not allowing, um, you know, disparaging comments, anti-Semitic, racist. These are all things that people are familiar with that are not allowed in the private sector. We need to be as aggressive and successful about that in the public sector. Community board members have the ear of elected officials. Those officials rely on them to relay the needs of their neighbors. Officials don't always take the recommendation of the boards, but they often do. It wasn't until 2020 that demographic data for board members was available. And Bonner says more work is needed. Demographics don't automatically qualify someone for public service. That doesn't mean that they're going to be advocates for that community, even if they check a box saying they're of that community. Do they actually care about that community? 
For those that do, the deadline to apply is March 1st. Elliot Chaparelli, Columbia Radio News. When Joe Biden was running for president, he promised relief for people with student loans. His plan was to cancel up to $10,000 of debt for each borrower. Now, a year later, President Biden has not made good on that promise. And as Chantel Destro reports, Americans have not forgotten. One of the ways Joe Biden won the primaries against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren was to join them in support of student loan forgiveness. That excited progressives. This lending system is catastrophically, uh, galactically failed. That is Alan Collins, founder of Student Loan Justice. Quite frankly, Joe Biden has an obligation to act on those campaign promises. And unfortunately, since he's become president after the election, he seems to be backsliding uh, in a really um, brazen and blatant way. Collins says that the only way to address the ongoing student debt crisis is for President Biden to take executive action, and a lot of Biden's supporters are impatient. Misty Weiscarver is a 55-year-old library software trainer and a mom of four. She has about $200,000 in student loan debt for her and her kids. Wisecarver has been writing emails to her senators and pushing them to get behind student debt cancellation. And she places significant blame on President Biden. She says she will not vote for him in 2024 if he does not cancel a portion of her loans. You have no idea how excited I was, how hopeful I was that this debt was going to be lifted. I'm very disappointed in the overall actions that President Biden has taken, it's, it's baby steps, it's piecemeal. So I just feel that he could do so much more. He could right this injustice that we've been suffering for so long. Polls show the majority of voters support some form of debt forgiveness, but voters widely disagree on who should get the benefit and how much they should get. Michael Spellman is a 43-year-old business owner who paid off about $40,000 for his own student loans. He says people should be responsible for paying their own debt. It's going to be money coming out of my paycheck to pay for somebody else's student loans. That's really not actually going to significantly improve their their station at all. Um, and, And it just was a completely foolish idea. And one that may never happen. Midterm elections are looming. President Biden is fighting to keep his Democratic majority in Congress. The reality is, upholding his campaign promise may not happen before the next presidential election. Chantal Destra, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Emily Schutz. Coming up, the latest in Amazon workers' battles for unionization. 
But first, these headlines. From Columbia Radio News, I'm Sarah Yokobitis. President Joe Biden announced a new round of sanctions against Russia this afternoon. He put new restrictions on Russian banks and financial institutions. He banned the export of certain technologies to Russia. And Biden said the U.S. will freeze assets belonging to Vladimir Putin's friends. Biden condemned what he called a, quote, unprovoked and unjustified attack and said there would be more sanctions to come. Biden later spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to pledge the United States support for Ukraine. The U.S. military announced today that a drone strike was carried out against al-Shabaab militants in Somalia. The bombing took place earlier this week. The group is a suspected affiliate of al-Qaeda, and the strikes marked the first American military action in East Africa since last August. Taiwan's Air Force was called into action today when nine Chinese aircraft entered the country's airspace. Some in Taiwan are concerned that China is using the global uproar over Ukraine as cover for invading the island nation. China claims Taiwan as its territory. The World Health Organization announced a new distribution center for COVID-19 vaccines in Africa. Instead of being sent vaccines, African countries can request the exact amount they need. The WHO hopes to reduce waste and increase vaccination rates on the continent. Only 11% of Africans are vaccinated. Stocks fell early today over concerns about potential cyber attacks from Russia, but tech stocks later rallied. The S&P 500 closed up 1.49%, and oil was up over $100 a barrel. Sarah Yokobitis, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Emily Schutz. The two lead prosecutors investigating Donald Trump and his business practices have resigned. Mark Pomerantz and Corey Dunn stepped down after a month-long pause in the proceedings and after District Attorney Alvin Bragg expressed doubts about the case. John C. Coffey is a law professor and expert in white-collar crime at Columbia University. I asked him why two lead prosecutors would step down from such a high-profile case. They didn't say that. They kept a stiff upper lip and said very little. But Mark Pomerantz once was a professor at Columbia Law School and wanted to do something as a career-ending achievement, namely the prosecution of Donald Trump. That was a chance to make history. Uh, I think he has found out that he doesn't have the support of the current district attorney. Why is that? That's the big mystery. Uh, Absent Pomerantz and Corey Dunn, I don't think the criminal prosecution will go forward. And the fact that we don't have them may be because the district attorney told them that he didn't want the criminal prosecution to go forward. And that truly is the $64 question. Mm -hmm. So the month-long pause in the proceedings, uh, was that because of, you know, Alvin Bragg's doubts about the case, or was that due to Omicron? I suspect that the delay for the last month Uh, was caused by back-and-forth negotiations, which did not work. And there's no reason for these guys to stay in that office. Mark Pomerantz, as a Paul Weiss partner before he came over to the U.S. to the district attorney's office, was probably making $5 million a year or something like that. That's the average salary at Paul Weiss for a partner. Uh, And I see no reason to stay there in a tiny job with low pay when he can go back to where he was and where he is really sending a quiet signal. I can't continue with this. I can't cooperate with this. We didn't get the support we needed. 
So kind of going off of that, Alvin Bragg was only recently appointed to the DA. So what would closing this investigation look like for his career? Because there could be some backlash to that. Well, there's been a good deal of backlash about several of his decisions. Why he would be opposed to a prosecution of Donald Trump, I do think that Manhattan is probably the area in the country, Manhattan or Berkeley, California, where you have the highest chance of convicting Donald Trump because the jury is going to be distinctly unsympathetic to him. Uh, So I think it's a winnable case. There may be some other reason. Uh, It may be it's making demands on the logistical resources of his office, but this is a prosecution that's worth some demands. It's probably worth more than a couple of small drug dealer cases. Uh, So we don't know what his motivation is, but he has had different motivations than the ordinary uh, prosecutor. Uh, People can disagree about whether this was a strong prosecution or a relatively thin case. This was not uh, catching John Dillinger coming out of the bank with machine guns blazing. It was a fairly technical case that probably was normally handled civilly. It could be the district attorney thought this was overcharging, but I don't think any New York politician who's elected is going to want to say, I don't want to overcharge Donald Trump. That is not the public feeling right now, at least in New York. Is a lawsuit from New York's attorney general more likely? It already exists. She has brought a suit against the Trump organization, and it's basically a tax fraud kind of lawsuit. But it is civil. She did not use the criminal option. And I think she would um, find it difficult to suddenly switch gears and move from a civil case to a criminal case. Um, I I have to say that uh, Mark Pomerantz is greatly respected in the profession. And I think he's made a quiet, dignified exit because he wasn't getting the support he wanted or needed, or he was being told bluntly that the district attorney would not permit the criminal prosecution. And that is the district attorney's legal responsibility. That was John C. Coffey, a law professor and expert in white collar crime at Columbia University. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Emily Schatz. Remember how much fun science museums were when you were a kid? Touching things and learning cool facts were a blast. But thanks to two years of COVID, many kids haven't been able to hold turtle shells or meet real-life scientists. Museums have been closed, or at limited capacity, but now things are changing. After virtual events last year, the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum is back for an in-person Kids Week. Do kids still remember how to have fun learning science, art, and engineering? David Newtown reports. It was cold and windy on the Hudson River this morning, but outside the intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum, a line was forming. The McInneses journeyed here this week from Boston. The intrepid was high on their list of sights to see. For Ellery, age seven, something in particular excited her. I'm excited for the astronaut stuff. Ellery's mom, Caitlin, was appreciative of Kids Week's focus on science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, better known as STEAM. I love that a lot of the education systems, New York and and Massachusetts, I'm sure, alike, have had an emphasis on STEAM and STEM. And I like that there's more museums and opportunities out there these days for kids of all ages to be able to experience those things. Inside the Intrepid Museum, it was much, much warmer. 
children wander between exhibits featuring marine life and camouflage. Laurel Zyma sat behind a booth with cards depicting scientists as superheroes. Children drew self-portraits of their own science superpowers. Zyma is here from Columbia University's Earth Science Program. I think this event is a wonderful opportunity for students to um, learn about different science concepts in a very hands-on and fun way and hopefully encourages them to, to pursue it in the future. Kids Week happens every year, but this is the first year to happen in person since COVID began. Jonathan Millard is the manager of school and teacher engagement at the Intrepid. He emphasized the importance of hands-on learning. When kids can make connections to their own lives, when they can touch something, manipulate it, or figure out how to modify it, it makes them more interested in learning. It's such an important experience for a child to be able to figure something out on their own terms instead of someone explaining it to them. A couple booths down, Ella's son, Four, and her mom, Hannah, stood over a display of marine skeletons. Kristen Schreiber, with the Billion Oyster Project, was showing the little girl different kinds of shells. Ella was shy. This one, the turtle shell, is, is different from the seashell. What does it feel like? It's like a turtle or sticky. <laughs> what made the turtle shell sticky, Ella never said. But maybe the seed of an idea was planted, and she would be the one to figure out why. David Newtown, Columbia Radio News. A key labor organizer for Amazon workers on Staten Island was arrested yesterday in Queens. He was accused of trespassing and resisting arrest when he and two other organizers brought food to workers at a distribution center at JFK. It's the latest in a protracted battle between Amazon and their army of workers. Previous efforts in other parts of the country have failed. And as our tech reporter Sarah Yukabitis reports, organizers in Staten Island are hoping that a different approach will work. 32-year-old Justine Medina works for Amazon. She commutes two hours to a Staten Island warehouse where the paper towels, multivitamins, dog food, and a plethora of other consumer products are stored before being shipped out. Medina earns $18.25 an hour. She wants workers like her to unionize and be paid more, especially after the record profits Amazon posted last year. Um, Amazon controls so much of the production line at this point. And then beyond the warehouse stuff, you know, they control internet infrastructure, they control, you know, they have uh, contracts with the government, with the military, you know, they control a lot. So I think that they're an important industry um, or, or company really, you know, sort of classic monopoly to, to take on. Organizing against the e-commerce giant has been a formidable challenge. In Bessemer, Alabama, workers lost an election two to one last year but organizers in Bessemer successfully appealed to the National Labor Relations Board to have the results thrown out. They say Amazon intimidated workers and interfered with the vote by installing a mailbox monitored by video. After the events in Bessemer, workers in Staten Island chose a different approach, forming an independent union that they say will be better able to fight Amazon. I mean, we're rooting for the RWDSU uh, Amazon comrades down in Bessemer, and we want Amazon to be unionized, right? So we, we supported all, but we just felt that uh, under the current conditions, the best way to make sure that it was worker-led was to start an independent union. In Bessemer, workers voted on whether or not to join the 80-year-old retail, wholesale, and department store union. 
Staten Island workers hope that a new union will be better equipped to organize for the kind of work that they do, which relies on technology for warehouse logistics. Lee Adler helped organize taxi drivers in New York City in the 1970s. He's now a professor at the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations and says organizers face a formidable challenge from the nation's second largest employer, with or without the assistance of existing union structures. Amazon is in your fingernails, it's um, in your dirty socks, it's in your underarm deodorant. I mean, it's everywhere, right? And so they're going against the most powerful uh, capitalist formation um, just about in the world. Adler is hopeful that Staten Island's solo approach will pay off, but he cautions that a win in the upcoming election is only the start of a long road to making substantial workplace changes, and the fight could go on for years. Meanwhile, the vote in Bessemer is being redone by mail over the next month, and the organizers arrested in Queens have been released and plan to fight the charges in court. Sarah Yokobitis, Uptown Radio News. Today I saw a peregrine falcon. I saw at least 300 ruddy ducks, so less a scorp. The list goes on. <laughs> Miriam Rakowski, Central Park bird watcher. Bird watching is a way to go into the park and live in the moment and forget about everything. You enjoy nature, you look at beautiful trees and flowers and birds, and it's a wonderful way to just relax and be in the moment and be grateful for what we have. A good 30 years ago, I had heard that the park rangers had a bird walk and took advantage of it. And it was so pleasant. I went back the following week and kept going back. Unbeknownst to me, the birds were seducing me. <laughs> You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Thursdays at 4 p.m. The online game Wordle was an overnight hit. Last November, there were about 90 players. By early January, over 300,000 were playing every day. The New York Times recently purchased the game from its developer, Josh Wardle. But, as David Marquez reports, for many, Wardle has become more than just a way to pass the time. Video game crazes come and go. Tetris, Pac-Man, Angry Birds... But Wordle may be uniquely suited for our pandemic era. Greg Steyer is a media studies professor at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, and he studies online games. He says that Wordle suits life during the pandemic when people are playing mobile games at home instead of on the commute to work. People have been more wanting to play games that absorb their attention and aren't just these little pieces of things that they kind of build into their everyday activities. And I think that um, Wordle's a little bit like that because though it's super short, it's a and focused sort of gameplay for the five minutes that you're playing. And even though it's a solitary game, Steyer says Wordle can also connect members of a community. Fans have created a French version called Le Mou. There's a Chinese Wordle, Pinyin Tsai Cheng Yu, where instead of a word, players have to guess a four-character idiom. And then there's Slovka, a Ukrainian language edition. Diana Haraluk lives in Bellingham, Washington, but she grew up speaking Ukrainian, and now she plays Slovka every day. She says it's harder than the English original. Even as a native speaker, it is a challenging board. Every like typical Ukrainian word that I can think of is way more than five letters. In addition to helping her keep sharp in her first language, Haraluk says Slovka helps her stay in contact with the Ukrainian speakers in her life, something even more important during a difficult time for the country. You know, between like my mom, my sister, and my best friend, like the three of us all 
not not try to regularly keep up with it. We're all in different locations. And it's, you know, it's kind of difficult to keep in touch, but having just this little like, hey, how'd you do on today's slow call? Like it's almost equivalent to, yo, I'm checking in on you, making sure like everything's still okay. The new owners of Wordle, the New York Times, haven't commented yet whether they plan to put Wordle behind a paywall. But Steyer says it's unlikely that Wordle will fizzle out anytime soon. Copyright law does not traditionally protect against game concepts. So it's very difficult to clamp down on a game. They'd have to do it around the title of the game, like if it's too close to Wordle, it just became very expensive to clamp down. He says that even if Wordle ends up behind a paywall, the game will keep evolving to suit the interests of its players. David Marquez, Columbia Radio News. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Lucy Grindon. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Julian Abraham. Director Elliot Schiaparelli coordinated our studio production with David Marquez and David Newtown. Our web editor, Mark Gilchrist, got his stream live to the web. Chantal Destra and Sarah Yokobaitis produced the news. Senior editor Clara Grunet led our copy team. Our instructors, Sally Hershop, Robert Smith, and Ben Shapiro advised our staff. I'm Rebecca Robinson. By the way, it's Rebecca's birthday today. Happy birthday to my fantastic co-host. I'm Emily Schutz. Uptown Radio is live on Thursdays at 4. Until next time, you can always find us at Columbia or <laughs> uptownradio.org. Sorry about that. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thank you for listening.